You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. My good mate, Morris Williamson, has spent 30 years in Parliament, and now he is an Auckland City Councillor. He is this week's political tragic, and he's here now to discuss and share his political journey. Welcome to The Crunch, Morris. Thank you very much. Now, you and I have a very, very, very long history of involvement in politics together, haven't we? Very long, actually. Longer than I think anybody else I know, really. Well, maybe Winston Peters would probably beat that by a little bit. No, I just meant our relationship because it well predates me going into Parliament and I'm only a few years short of his parliamentary time. So, Well, that's right. You know, and um, I can remember when you um, went and came around and sat in Mum and Dad's lounge and said, uh, look, John, I'm, I'm going to stand for Parliament. And Dad was, oh, great, we're going to have a new candidate need an electorate. And then you said, uh, yeah, I'm going to seek the nomination in Pakaranga. Why did you why did you do that after all the shenanigans that you and I got up to in Eden Electorate, pioneering probably the first dirty politics ever? Probably, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I guess it's just I've got a background in mathematics and physics, and I've always used computers. In those days, we didn't have spreadsheets and PCs like we do now, but I did some numbers. And uh, when I was going to stand, that was in 87, Roger Douglas had been in power for three years and the vast bulk of National Party voters liked what he'd done way, way more than what the previous Muldoon regime had done for nine years. I mean, Muldoon brought in wage freezes and price freezes and carless days and all sorts of what you'd call... 66 cents tax in the dollar? Yeah, 66 cents. I mean, I keep telling people... Think about it. Two-thirds of what you earned above, and remember it kicked in at $22,000 of income. So anything over twenty two grand of income, the government took two-thirds of what you earned. And I've always thought all tax is theft, but certainly 66 cents is bloody theft. I can so remember, I like to sat I can down remember. with my computer, and I looked at 87, and Eden wasn't winnable, and your dad was pretty upset about it because he wanted me to stand in Eden. I said, it's got, you haven't got a chance. Oh, rubbish, we'll win Eden Comfort. I said, my numbers are saying, I said, you'll be lucky to hold on to Remuera, and your dad burst out laughing. And I yeah. said, I'm sorry, but you will. You'll be lucky to hold on to it. Well, on the night, National lost Remuera and got it back. Doug Graham got it back with specials and only then only just got it back. Mm. And that was up against someone like Judith Tizard for Labour, who I wouldn't say was the greatest candidate or the greatest political uh, motivating force out there in the world. It's just people like Roger Douglas. And when I door knocked here in Pakaranga, Howick, Bucklands Beach, everybody that saw the blue rosette, not nah, not voting for you guys, voting for Labour. And I'd look down at my list and it would say they'd been members of the National Party. I said, for Labour? Well, not no, no, not for Labour, but for Roger Douglas. Mm. You know, I can remember standing next to you and you having an absolute Donnybrook with Robert Muldoon over the over tax. I think it was a, a, a public meeting out in in South Auckland somewhere. You know, he would get hundreds and hundreds of people there. And I can remember going there and you having an absolute Donnybrook with him over taxation. And you've never been afraid of having a Donnybrook over things that you believe in, have you? No. And what was interesting, there was a, a time of change coming. When Muldoon had been in his early years in power, you dared even suggest anything was wrong or you'd be taken to by little old ladies at a national party with an umbrella who'd give you a good dusting. But the mood shifted as we realised that we had elected a government that wasn't a sort of a centre-right and a and a sort of a reforming, open, liberal democracy-type party, but a, we're going to control this, we're going to fix that, we're going to stop this. I mean, Muldoon would even try to solve industrial disputes on the ninth floor. He'd call both parties in and say, right, you're going to take 3%, you're going to give this, you can have this many holidays and so on. And, of course, everybody got what nobody wanted, and it was it, it, it was not an enduring solution. It didn't last sometimes weeks before they were bad at So when I first went to the National Party and got up and asked questions about it, I got booed, I got jeered. But what I detected over the course of a few years, the mood shift started to change. 
And by the time I was really taking him on over the 1982 Land and Income Tax Amendment, where he was saying to people that had bought land specifically for a purpose and then had chosen to sell it at some time later, oh, sorry, we're going to retrospectively take this law back and make you pay a capital gains tax on it, something that wasn't even in law when you did it all. And I remember going to a party conference in uh, the Michael Fowler Centre in Christchurch, and I got up, and I got a huge round of applause, sort of saying it was a disgrace and labelling people uh, like Queen Street farmers and the greedy simply should be treated with the contempt that deserved. And that same speech four years ago would have given me an absolute run out of town and tarred and feathered, got a round of applause, and Muldoon had literally by... 83 and certainly into 84, lost the plot altogether. Well, the last three years of the Muldoon years, I think, you know, the McPhail and Gadsby um, gags. (laughs) 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 Yeah, good night. Good night, Aussie. We were in Aussie Malcolm's electorate. Now we used we used that, didn't we? We went and put up our own signs. <laughs> well, the, the funniest one about the good night Aussie, because uh, just for your viewers that may not have remembered, the, there was a picture of the beehive at the end of the show, and it had all the little yellow windows with lights coming out of it, and then they'd gradually click off one at a time. And just like in the TV show The Waltons, the kids would all call out good night, and the yeah. dad would say, you know, good night, John boy, and good night, Mary Lou, and so on. But in this case, it would be Muldoon saying goodnight to Ben Couch and others. And one, the, the cracker, I always remember it because Aussie was a bit of a sycophant when it came to Muldoon. The, the light goes off uh, and he says, uh, good, good night, leader. And Muldoon says, ah, good night, Aussie. And then there's a silence and he says, oh, and Aussie, uh, yes, leader, uh, hands where I can see them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but- you know, we we put up those little signs all the way down Gillies Ave, you know, um, ourselves. And people yes. thought it was the Labour Party that was doing it and it was us. We were going, <laughs> going around putting these little signs up saying, good night, Aussie, <laughs> all the way down Gillies Ave. So people lined up to get queuing to get on the motorway. We're seeing, I know. It oh, was uh it was, uh, I think you're right, it was an era where we first saw the sort of, instead of the dull politics of people just went to a polling booth and that was it, there was a bit of fire in the belly of people. Even and, the mean, National was, Party wanted to see the back of Muldoon, though, didn't we? Well, <laughs> the vast bulk of the new breed did. What was interesting is that big crossover. Muldoon had stood in 75 to be a right-wing free market private enterprise policy because that's what was in our aims and objects. Yeah. And then for nine years practised the exact opposite. You couldn't get more opposite than what he actually practised. And then in 1984, Roger Douglas gets in, well, Longy, but Roger Douglas was controlling things. And for the first three years, it didn't continue, but at least for the first three years, they practised the antithesis of what any Labour Party person loved. And I got into Parliament in 1987, and this is hilarious, You get ranked as a newbie, you get ranked on your surname. And because I'm a Williamson, I was last. And so I got to sit right up on the Mason-Dixon line next to all the backbench Labour Party people. McCulley would have you believe it was on IQ, but it was actually on surname, the ranking. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so I'm sitting up there next to all these Labour Party people. And then the first week, we've got the address and reply speech where there's a speech from the throne and then all the members get up and give an address in reply to that. And Roger Douglas came down to the house and I was just sitting at my bench writing some stuff and he gave a speech. And in the end, I put my pen down and I just was transfixed. And when he finished, all I could remember is his whole back bench was saying, you bastard, you're gone, never again. We go, we're sick of this. And I'm sitting there. When he finished, I went, and I was clapping away and clapping <laughs> away. And then I slowed down because I realized that none of theirs were clapping. And none of ours were <laughs> clapping. And Bill Birch called me out into the lobby and he says, what the hell was that? And I said, well, I thought that was one of the best speeches I've ever listened to. <laughs> and he said, there's a rule around this place. If you can't kick them, don't kiss them. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. And he said, I don't want to ever hear you clapping the other side again. And I thought, well, actually, I will clap if I hear a bloody good speech. If it's, I don't care who gives it if I agree with it and it's the right thing. Well, of course, it was their side that... I mean, they cut his throat within months of that election. Yeah. yeah. 
And it was a lot of dancing around. Everybody was celebrating the end of Roger Douglas, but it, it signalled a, a kind of a, a false government, really, that lurched from there to the 1990 bloodbath. Look, if they had stayed with the direction of travel he was setting and what he was achieving with deregulation, with privatisation, et cetera, et cetera, with a rationalising of the tax system, we would have struggled in 1990 to have got elected. And it was only because Longy pulled the pin and wanted the cup of tea and the breather and sacked Roger Douglas, because I can tell you the, the reason they would have won is not so much from Labour electorates, but the Remueras and East Coast Bays and the Pakaranga electorates and the Fendletons, mm. they actually loved what the guy was doing. And I had to keep saying to people in my electorate, if you want Rogernomics to continue, you've got to vote national. And they said, what? And I said, that's right. And I actually did an article in the Howick and Packeranger Times, which was on the front page, and the editor thought I'd lost the plot. And I said, if you want Rogernomics to continue, because his team won't allow it to continue, and lo and behold, a few months later, they cut his throat. And I was really pleased they did because my hope that that was right may not have come true. The big mistake on behalf of the, the the left of the Labour Party because they could have stayed in power because they don't want to stay in power and keep doing the things that the centre-right loved. They hated it. Mm. They, they just want to tax people all the time, don't they? Well, it was the control. I mean, I, I think when I'm ever asked what's the difference between the left and the right, and now obviously there's a million differences, but one is to do with what control you have over people's lives and the other is to see what control you don't have. I'm a big libertarian and a freedom person who just says, I'd rather have as little tax on anybody as I can have, but they pay for a lot of things themselves. I'd rather them manage their own savings. I would rather them manage their own destiny in life. But the left like the idea of block control, compulsory unionism, fix this, we'll do that, state housing delivery and so on. The big difference is between how much governments control the population and how much freedom you give the population. Let's just go back to Muldoon a bit. He did some good things, though, when he was in power. I mean, you know, the, all of the you know, gay electric cars that all of the, the left wing want to shove down everybody's throats are all powered by his Think Big projects. Yeah, I, I wouldn't ridicule his Think Big projects as much as some people do. I do think they were not done correctly in terms of proper contestability of who was the builder of it and getting good bids to do it. But the, the concept of getting some of those big projects that would safeguard ourselves against future shock, they weren't wrong. They, they weren't wrong, and, and uh, we're bearing the benefits of some of those projects now. But it was just flavour of the day to, to mock think big. They, they, they used to use the phrase sink pig instead of think big. Uh, to have a crack at Piggy Muldoon, but I was never that—I was never that anti it. I was anti the fact that the government was going to build them and the, the government was going to control them. I'm a big fan of private partnerships, public-private partnerships, or contestability of supply, and, and allowing those people to make a return on their investment. You'll get much better quality investment. You'll get much better uh, pricings and everything if it's not just uh, the public purse. You've told me a story a few times, and I've had it confirmed from others, that when the Labour government was looking at purchasing or signing up to the Anzac frigates, Muldoon was on one of the select committees there and uh, had a bit of a uh, argument with, with an Australian admiral. Well, let me give it to you because I think it, it's just so crystal clear. Muldoon, Muldoon arrived a little bit late. Uh, it was after two o'clock. We had a two o'clock meeting, and I'm pretty sure he'd had a bit of a liquid lunch. And he was ready for a fight because there was a couple of sort of things Muldoon didn't like in life. It was military people and it was Australians, and he had both sitting across from him. <laughs> so he was ready for a bit of grump and a bit of poking the bear. And the worst thing was the Australian admiral opened up like a salesman. It was shocking. You know, fair do, dinky die, cobber sport pal, our boats are the best in the world. There is no denial. And instead of saying, look, you've got some concerns, we'd like you to you know, air them with us, we brought a whole stack of officials with us. And in the end, this, vo this voice, because Muldoon's voice was mag magic, it just chainsaw cut through, doesn't matter what hubbub 
his voice just went through it like a chainsaw. And he goes, but the greatest respect, Admiral, that's crap. And, <laughs> oh, everyone's going, and, oh, and what's, you know, it was a panic stations. And uh, he says, I've done my homework. The Danish frigates are better and they're cheaper. And the Dutch frigates, they're even way better and they're cheaper. Why would we want to buy your rubbish? And uh, the, the old admiral, he was trying to get into the fighting mode. He's telling his officials to shut up. And he says, well, you're not right, you know, on a features and a cost performance basis and a dollar value. Uh, our boats are the best in the world. But even if you were right, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that you are, what I can tell you is that boats built in the Northern Hemisphere are totally inappropriate for Southern Hemisphere oceans. And Muldoon looked at him and went, eh? Like, what the hell does that mean? Like, the oceans in the Southern Hemisphere are different. Well, it turns out they are because the Earth is not a sphere. It's a pear shape, and yeah. the ocean wavelengths are about a metre and a half or something longer than the wavelengths of the oceans in the Northern Hemisphere. But Muldoon didn't know it, none of us knew it. And he said, eh? And the, and, the, and the Admiral thought he was, I got one over. He said, that's right. And Muldoon said, quick as a flash, and I thought this was just the classic. He said, uh, so what are you telling us here, Captain? Uh, Admiral, he says, what are you telling us here? Captain Cook came on the wrong ship. <laughs> 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 and that just brought the house down. And even the, cam- the, the cameraman that was there from television, he, he couldn't stop shaking to try and get some good footage because the camera was up on his shoulder. And he just, I mean, the room was just, and then Muldoon just put his jowls in his, in his hands like that and just glared back, gotcha. And from that point, it was all over, over. He had won the debate straight out, right? When you got into Parliament, Muldoon had a little piece of advice for you, didn't he? He had heaps of advice, you know, the old breathe through your nose. And I remember up at the bloody tea and coffee table my first week there outside the caucus room, and I was trying to find which was tea and coffee, and he looked at me and said, ha, the only difference between Bellamy's tea and Bellamy's coffee is the tea's got something floating in it. <laughs> <laughs> but you have, you need to tell me which one you've got in mind because there are plenty. Oh, there's plenty. You know, he, that's the thing with Muldoon is everyone thought he was this grumpy, cantankerous, you know, curmudgeon of a bloke, and he was. But he, yeah. he cared very deeply about New Zealand. He just had the wrong well, skill set to do anything about it. Well, if it, we go back to the, the, the Captain Cook come on the wrong ship, I can tell you that when we were walking out of that big room, there was a big long table in a big room, he, yeah. he sort of sidled up beside me and he was a lot, lot, lot shorter than I am. And I remember him and he looked up at me and he said, always use the F word if you don't want it on the six o'clock news. <laughs> and I thought, you know, so he was always happy to give advice. He quite often gave me advice about things. He didn't like my right-wing politics. Of course he didn't. But he never personalised it well. I shouldn't say never. He he didn't often personalise. So I actually enjoyed trying to pick his brains when I could. He was nowhere near as bad as a lot of people have made him out to be, but I still wasn't a fan of his politics. You had, what What was your final count for years in Parliament? 30. 30, 30 years? 30. It's a you long get less time. For murder. You get less for murder. <laughs> you get less. That's you what get they a hell of a lot about, less for murder, actually. That's what they say about marriage, isn't it? It's not a... <laughs> It's not a word, it's a sentence. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I like the one a man who remarries doesn't deserve to have lost his first wife. <laughs> <laughs> In that time, you've seen some good politicians, you've seen some ugly politicians, you've seen some dreadful politicians. Who stands out for you as perhaps your number one politician? You can't include yourself in this one, Morris. Who do you think, oh, out of that 30 years really, of being really in Parliament, who's your number one? Well, I, I mean, I just I don't really care for the, the handsome or the flamboyant or the popular. For me, it's the person who is a policy driver of things that make a difference, that will grow the economy, that will get people into jobs. There can be no doubt that Roger Douglas and followed very quickly as an almost duplicate Ruth Richardson are the two politicians that I've looked on, you know, in, in awe over my years there. Both yeah. people dedicated to growing the economy. Because one of the things that I learned in politics, actually, it's a quote from Maggie Thatcher, and you know I'm not religious, but she quoted the, the Bible, and she said, the good Samaritan didn't do what he did just because he was good. He also had the money. 
And the reason she, she gave that quote is the whole lot of people that walk past this poor Sumerian lying in the gutter, starving with no clothes and no shelter, the vast bulk of them had no money themselves to help him. And when the good Samaritan walked by, he's got heaps of dollars and camels and a house and a mansion. So that's the same thing with the economy. You know, you want a better education system. You want a better health delivery system. You want, you know, you even want a good welfare state to be a hand up, not a hand out. But you can't do any of those if you're poor. And so what Roger Douglas and Ruth said about was breaking the old paradigms where we'd been stuck in a rut, subsidizing farming. I guess that's one of my most amazing memories of politics. Mm. Farmers were the greatest advocates of not all this open market and fighting and protest at parliament. And it was evil and it was wrong. And what Roger Douglas did caused so much dislocation to farming. I tell you, there is no bigger group on the planet now that want free market, private enterprise, open trade, no subsidies than the farmers. Yeah. They are the greatest free market traders and going and good on them. And they know that if you're a good farmer and you're efficient and you're doing well, you can make a bloody good income. And if you're a hopeless farmer doing poorly and getting very bad production off your land, you don't deserve to stay there. And uh, I just think having the courage from within a – I guess Roger Douglas could do it because no one in the National Party could have. You'd have never got the numbers we're always too conservative about change or, oh, that's going to be too difficult. I don't think we could sell that. He, he just bolted through with stuff, just broke all the barriers, banged it in. His own party hated it. His own members just couldn't stand it. But I think New Zealand would be a much poorer place if it hadn't been for the 84 to 87 Roger Douglas period and the 90 to 93 Ruth Richardson period. Yeah. What about... Dead set useless MPs. Who's your number one dead set useless MP that they should never have even drawn breath? Oh, and that's it's, it's tough, isn't it? It's really There's a hard. whole lot that you'd say come into that category. I, I guess it's the ones I'm, I'm not going to try and name one because I could, but I don't know which one I would give. It's those that came there, either that's the best job they've ever had and they couldn't earn anything better outside, so they stayed on. And they literally just achieved nothing. There are people that have left Parliament. And when I did my valedictory, I got a big list. I thought, bugger, I'm going to stick this up the news media. And from everything I'd done to deregulating the transport sector and aviation to bringing in the photo license, to I had a list that just went on and on and on and on and bringing in smart gates for, this, for the border so that you could walk through without having to do with a customs officer and so on. But I can tell you, I can name a heap of people that got there, spent a big time, did nothing, and then left again. And when you say, well, give us one thing you achieved. Um, uh, well, I don't know. I made sure we kept the cups clean at Bellamy's. Uh, what about You shouldn't be there if you can't get some runs on the board and then go. I, I stayed too long. I have no doubt in my mind that I stayed at least a couple of terms too long. I shouldn't have stayed the length I did. And yeah. any advice I've got to anybody else, don't stay too long because you'll regret it. So what you'd say is get in, cause a ruckus, do something, get out. Yeah. I, you know, I'm quite keen on maybe term limits. I, I think it's quite a good idea to say, I mean, I don't know what to set it at, but maybe, what, three years times, say four terms. So that's 12 years. If you can't make a difference in 12 years, then you can't make a difference. And it would make people more strategic about when they choose to go into Parliament too because you don't want to go in um, when your party's going out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Although that's a little bit harder to manage because, you know, getting selected for a major party is very difficult. It's not necessarily – I've seen selection after selection where the top talent didn't get through – but because they were good friends of the electorate chairman and had good barbecues or whatever. Uh, and so you can't just say, oh, well, I'm going to stand and I'll get selected uh, in this particular term and then I'll go through and do these three years as a minister in the government. But it's certainly how you should try to plan it and then see if you can execute the plan. I've been talking about a lot about uh, the increased polarisation that we have in politics in particular in the United States, but in New Zealand as well. And 
it kind of sort of came in around the end of the Muldoon era with Clark, who was always talking about Tories and that lot over there, and there was the nastiness of Michael Cullen. Um, whilst privately he might have been jocular and friendly and all that, when it came to actually speaking out loud in Parliament, he was quite nasty. Do you think that this is a positive influence in in politics to have this hyper-polarisation that we've got now where you can't even talk to anybody on the other side because you're seen as a traitor or a, or a class traitor or something like that? No, no, I don't. I think it's dreadful. And I can tell you I spent many a night having a chat to Roger Douglas and he gave me quite a lot of advice and he was a minister in a government on the other side. Uh, it's because I felt I was in tune with the things he was wanting to do and he felt I was in tune with him. But now it's got, I'll tell you what's got worse, is the whole personality culture thing. Mm. And now, for example, racism is a tag. It doesn't matter what you say or do. If someone doesn't like it, they're quick to grab, oh, you're a racist. And um, I'll give you an example. At the council one day, I was expressing my concern that we could not put rates up above inflation because people had been hammered so much for so many years with rate increases, we needed to put a lid on it. And I had a councillor from another part of Auckland say, well, I don't hear about rates being a concern and no one I speak to is worried about rates going up. And I thought to myself, that's quite the opposite of what I hear in Howick. So I went online immediately just sitting at the meeting and had a look at stats and I brought down a graph of home ownership by local board. And if you go to the very north and the very south, that is Rodney uh, or Franklin, it's very high, very big percentage of people own their own homes. Mm -hmm. And if you come into the Takapunas or Mission Bay through to Howick and Bucklands Beach, it's in the high 70s or the 80s. But there are parts of South Auckland where home ownership is down in the low 30s. So if you were the candidate or the, the, the ward councillor in that area, more than two out of every three people you meet don't pay rates. Now, and now of course they do, but it's through a mechanism called rent that they don't see, so they don't get a rate increase come in the mail. So I took a, a call and made that point, that there were parts of Auckland where there was very big home ownership and rate increases really hurt the, the homeowner. And there were other parts of Auckland where the people that lived in the houses didn't own them. And the very first call straight out was, that's racist. Oh, it's and I thought I didn't raise anybody's race. I don't think race has got anything to do with it. It's, it's just lazy. who owns a home. Well, there's a, there are sometimes you can prove why they're wrong. I mean, every time it'll be opinions mainly. But I'll mm. give you one area where I can prove that the claim of racism was wrong. In the mayoralty election, Wayne Brown beat Afeso Collins by 50,000, 60,000 votes. Against Afeso all the predictions Collins of the media. immediately went public and said, oh, the only reason I didn't get elected because the voters of Auckland are racist, and it was racist because I'm a Pacific Islander that I didn't get to be the mayor. And so, again, I got my trusty computer out, whipped up every ward, and I looked at those wards where there were... Pacific Island candidates standing for council. In just about every case, they got thousands more vote than Efeso got in the same ward. Right. Filipina got six and a half thousand more votes for the ward councillor from the exact same voters than Efeso got. So if it was anti-Pacific Island, how come they voted for Al Filipina but not for him? And so that proves that the vote wasn't racist. It was they had decided he wasn't the person they wanted to be mayor. And I see that in the parliament now, if you attack a, a female member of the House and say, mm -hmm. you know, the minister's hopeless and she's flailing, you're immediately labelled a misogynist. But you would do the same thing. I would certainly do the same thing if it was a bloke. If the bloke was a failing minister who was incompetent and running the place into the ground, I would do the exact same attack on them. as it. But the moment you do it because it's a female, oh, you're a misogynist. And if you did it to a Maori minister, oh, you're a racist. But, or, but or, you're, racism, or you're a racist misogynist in the case of Kerry Allen. Instead of addressing her behaviour of you know, drunk driving and absconding from police and all the, all the rest of the revelations that have come out this week from the police who involved in you know, the dog handler and all of that, 
it's appalling behavior. But if you criticize it, there's been, you know, multiple uh, opinion pieces in the Herald on stuff. You've had all these ministers come out and say, oh, no, it's dreadful. They're just attacking Kerry Allen because she's a Wahini Maori. And they're not, and it's my view is rubbish. the real test is if a white bloke had crashed a ministerial car into another car, left the scene, got found in a park, police dogs trapped you back, and you were over the limit, would you go after them the same as we went after Kerry Allen? The answer is, of course. There'd be no difference. It would be to do with their actions, what they had done, their behaviour and so on. But the, there is this, it, it, it's a wonderful, the weaponizing of mental health. I've never seen it up until now. I mean, let me tell you how one-sided it can be. We, we had a member in our caucus called Nick Smith, and he had a bit of a sort of a meltdown in 2002 and had to be sent home and have a bit of rest and recuperation and because he'd had a bit of a mental health issue. When he got back to Parliament, Trevor Mallard and people like Grant Robertson, they led the choir with lines like, you're taking your pills today, Nick? How's the lupo going today? Have the men in white coats dropped you off? And all this sort of stuff. It went on and on. They were relentless. They're the same people who are now saying, you mustn't touch this because someone with mental health should be left alone. Now, I want to put my case here. I think a person that has got a mental health issue should be left alone. But if they, that is if they vacate the battlefield. Mm. If you leave the battlefield, you should never touch them. It should be finished. But if they come back into the battlefield, get ready to fire salvos at you, as Kerry Allen was doing, launching her law and order policy and answering questions to the media and so on, and the Prime Minister saying it wasn't even a mental health break, she'd taken time off to look after her kids in a school holiday, you can't then weaponize mental health when it's convenient. You want to vacate the battlefield? I won't say a word. I'll never mention it. You want to stay fighting, but then say, but you can't touch me, because then that would be attacking a wahini Maori or it's weaponizing mental health. You can only have it one way or the other, but this lot want to have it both ways. Speaking of both ways, that's what we've got in Auckland, isn't it, with rates increases? Yeah. Um, I, I want to put a bit of a, a plea to, the, to your listeners on this one. So many people think that local government is a bit like central government and that your prime minister is the same as a mayor, but there's a huge difference when you get to be prime minister, you are made prime minister by the governor general because you can assure the, the governor general that you have a majority of the votes in the parliament. Yep. You don't get to be PM if you haven't got them. And that's what our confidence and supply. And he says, are you sure that you could withstand a confidence and a supply motion? Yes. Okay, I now declare you prime minister. But that was just a person. When Chris Hipkins stand at the coming election, he's not standing as prime minister. He's standing in Rimataka as the candidate for the Labour Party in Rimataka. Yeah. But in council, the mayor is only one vote out of 21. Yeah. There is no party whip. There is no everybody follows one side or the other. And so every time we go to the governing body, I am literally confused as hell as where the vote will go and have been never surprised to find that some people I thought were on the other side voting yes, and I thought they were a no, and others that said no or yes. And at the end, I thought, bloody hell, I don't know how you make this work. Because I thought there was a lay-down Mazaire case for selling Auckland airport shares. Yeah, uh, They are costing us a fortune in the debt that we would be able to relieve if we sold them. We'd be, uh, you know, if we could sell the whole $2.2 billion dollars, we'd be saving ourselves like 120, maybe 130 million a year in debt servicing. And what we would be giving away is, well, up to now, three years of no dividend, but in very best of times, maybe 20 or 30 million. And I don't know any person, and I don't know any household, I don't know any family that if their mortgage was killing them and the cost of servicing it, but they found a big chunk of shares which weren't returning any great return in the cupboard, They'd whip them in and sell them and reduce their mortgage in a heartbeat. But it turned out that there was nowhere near a 50% majority for selling the shares. And we had people like Al Filipina say, 
the Pacific Islanders of Auckland use that airport as their one link to the Pacific Islands, and I don't want it sold. Hey, hang on. If it was sold, were they going to were they going to knock down all the buildings, roll it all up, and move it somewhere else, or was it going to still be there? As the there is there is a school of thought that there'd be a big barge come through the Manukau heads, the airport would be slid over onto the barge, and you would see the Auckland Airport disappearing out through the Manukau heads. Well, first of all, there is a big. I can remember doing some of this because I was minister for foreign uh, ownership stuff. There is big restrictions on foreigners buying the airport, so that that rules that out. But secondly. You know, there are private sector people today buying shares in Auckland Airport. They're tradable on the market. And I keep thinking, I just, and if they were returning a way better return than we were paying on our debt for that same amount of money, you'd say, well, we wouldn't sit, this is a gold mine. Why would you get rid of them? But the exact opposite was true. And even when we got advice in from financial experts that said, because I use this quote, even the good times are bad. Even the best of times of the of the best dividend you could label compared to the biggest amount of debt servicing you've got, even in those best times, we're still down the negative tube a lot. But in the worst of times, we're down the gurgler like you wouldn't believe. But it, it was one of those, the mayor just couldn't get the numbers. And I just thought, what is going where, where Common sense has gone out the window here. Well, what's and, your famous line? Every, everyone wants to go to heaven? Yeah, but nobody wants to die. And that's the same and same again. In fact, um, there were we. I, I got together with the finance people, and we wrote a really good uh, Excel app, and it had these six panels that you, when you opened the file, and you could slide these sliders for how much you wanted to reduce spending, how yeah. much you wanted to increase debt, what you wanted to do with selling of the airport shares, and the very last slider worked itself. It was automatic. What would that mean? Your rates had to be. If you hit the button of no mitigation at all, that is, you left things as are, 22.5% would be your rate increase. And so I said to people, well, tell me what slider you want to go up. Oh, well, we should take on some more debt. And I said, well, we've got $12 billion. That's $12,000 million of debt already. We're spending $1.5 million a day on servicing that debt. You really want to take on more? You want to put more on the credit card when it's explodingly overloaded? Yep. So we took it up, but there was a couple of lines on the graph which said, if you go beyond this, you go beyond your debt-to-revenue ratio that the rating agency says acceptable, and you'll get a credit downgrade, and that means you'll pay a lot more for your interest rates and so on. Okay. Well, you don't want to go above that, surely. No, no, no. Just to where that, just to take the slider just to there, yeah? Okay. Now, you want to take some costs out, right? Well, we let's get rid of, we're paying for early childhood care centres, which is certainly not something council should be in. Oh, no, no. No, the the, the, the Kauri kids, early childhood, they're really important for us. I said, look, they're very important. I'm not saying early childhood centres are not important. Mm. They're not the role of council. They're just not the role of council. We've got a healthy eatings program with staff that work on it. We've got a smoking cessation program that, that staff are working on. Isn't and again, I'm a government? big fan. I know I, don't that- look like, I know I don't look like I am, but I'm a big fan of healthy eating program, but not for the council. And yeah. to try to win those debates was just mind-numbing. So, how, it's- how are you getting on battling the bureaucrats? You know, you, you're in charge of the, the so-called razor gang, looking, yeah. trying to look at line-by-line items and the how are you getting on, A, getting information out of these people? And well, that B, was the first actually struggle. identifying what you could cut? That was the first struggle. Uh, to get the information was, uh, no, you can't have it. And I said, I have to get access to the granular data. They said, no, no, we'll, we'll give you reports which show how we're going fine. I said, no, no, no. I can remember being on the Cabinet Expenditure Control Committee in the early 90s. We brought every government department in and we went line by line. What is this? What would happen if we only spent half that much? What would happen if we didn't spend any at all on it? What would happen if we put it out to the private sector and got them to do it for a lower rate? Uh, and we found all sorts of uh, of very poor quality spending and fat in the system that we could rip out of it by doing that forensic detail. But the, the council bureaucracy said, no, no, you're trying to cross the line between governance and management 
our role is to do that work and to put recommendations to you. Now, I'm a big fan of keeping a distinct line between governance and management, but you can't do a role in the governance side of a business if you don't know what questions to ask. Yeah. You don't know what to ask about what's happening in parks. Why has it gone that much? Where did that growth come from? Why have we doubled the spending on that area of things? And we didn't know that. And I couldn't find other councillors that had been there for a long term that knew it. So I just fought a fight. I sort of got really quite obnoxious about it and said, if I'm here to do a job, I've got to get access to the granular data. Just as a little interesting by the side, by time in the States, there was about nine states that I know of, probably more, but I know of, who published to the web their entire granular state spending budget. So any person can go and log on, download big CSV files or Excel files and get the absolute granular spending for the state government. And so I wanted the council to give me that granular data. And they said, oh, well, it's too big. It's it's hundreds of thousands of records. You wouldn't be able to do anything with it. And I just said, look, stop getting me so excited. You give me 800,000 records. That's the most, that, uh, that you know, that's more, that's the most fun I've ever had with my clothes on is to get that sort of number of records and do some work with it. And I've been using sort of SQL Server and pivot tables and pivot charts and dragging stuff up and summarizing them into dashboards and then looking at what percentages changes and putting deflators like inflation or population growth to try and find out. And we've found out a lot so far. But the next barrier came with, you can't do that because it's not in the long-term plan. And again, I want to get your listeners very aware of how much of a straitjacket uh, local authorities have on them. They've got to produce a a plan that's a 10-year long-term plan. And I promise you that the way the world works, you can't even plan three years out without knowing something's going to come along and disrupt things or turn them upside down. Mm. But then you can't do anything that's outside of that three-year plan. Now, the good news is we got the annual budget done, 11% increase in rates, which is the biggest ever, although both Brown and I got elected on we were going to bring rates down. We just couldn't get those numbers. Mm. We mitigated them a bit by getting rid of a few of the ridiculous targeted rates that are not being used as a natural environment, an NETR, natural environment targeted rate and a WQTR, water quality targeted rate, and we got those out and we used the money from those to bring the the residential uh, rate increase to 7.7. But 7.7 is still a disgrace and we should be ashamed of it. And what now we've started on is the work on redoing redoing the long-term plan. And I want to ensure that we take away that straitjacket of you've got to work within this narrow confines and you've got to only do this and get a long-term plan, which is about delivering of outcomes, but you've got the right to change the policy settings uh, as you go in order to achieve those outcomes. So you've got an impossible task. The, the, the voters have elected you to, to do this, and you can't actually do it because... You don't have the numbers. The structure, you never have the numbers. The structure and the systems in place in Auckland Council mean yeah. that it's it's almost impossible to get there. And so now, when I said there's no whip, there is a few Labour members of uh, the council. They stood on Labour Party billboards and platforms. And I mean, Josephine Bartley and uh, Shane Henderson. And uh, there's this, I, I can't remember, Lotto Fully. In fact, two of our councillors, two of them, Lotto Fully and Kieran Leone, are the next two on the Labour Party list to go into Parliament. If there were a couple of deaths or a couple of resignations or something in Labour, two of our councillors would be the next two off the list. So there is a Labour Party group, but the National Party, in its infinite wisdom, bless its little heart, have never been prepared to allow candidates to stand for local body under the banner of the National Party. I've never been able to fathom that, and and it's a legacy that just... For some reason, the National Party can't get past. Well, I'll tell you a funny story because you will love this. Um, at Premier House in nine, in 2015, I think it was, it was straight after the, no, it must have been 14, after the 2013 local body election, I got up and asked the party president at that stage, and I wanted to make it really for specific. I said, why is it? that in every comparable jurisdiction, you know, every Western world comparable country that we can name, 
So I didn't want to include Burkina Faso and the Horn of Africa, but I did want to include Canada and America and Britain and France and Germany and Australia. Why is it in every one of those comparable nations, they stand candidates right down the ballot? In fact, where I was in the States, there were people standing for the local school board with Democrat and Republican written after their names. And the answer I got was terribly unsatisfactory. It was, well, we never have. And I thought, and I, I remember I spoke to Boris Johnson in London many years ago. Many, I was there on a ministerial trip and I got to meet him. And I said to him, you know, did you get to be the mayor of London because you stood as a conservative candidate for the Conservative Party? And he said, well, how else do you think I'd get to be mayor? And I said, so you'd never get to be mayor as an independent? He said, you wouldn't have a dog show. You wouldn't even begin to start to do it. He said, I was proud to be a conservative candidate and I got there elected based on my party. And, I, and he said, well, why don't you do the same and stand for your party for the mayoralty? Of I said, well, we're not allowed to. The party won't do it. And I've never understood to this day, if you can get somebody on a show one day and from the National Party to ask them, why do you not? And um, as I said, the Greens do it. Tory Farnow is a Green and um, the, the Labour Party certainly do it. Goff, um, I, I guess they do a little bit of a jiggery pokery, and he said he wasn't good Labour, even though he just come from being the Labour leader. But but others did stand under the banner. I think there's five or six of them on the council that are Labour. But there's no majority for any one direction of travel. And then, and therein lies the problem. Yeah, that's the problem. It, just before we finish up, Morris, let's. You've spent a bit of time in the United States, um, in your diplomatic role when you finished up your parliamentary career. How do you see things panning out in the United States where we've we're lurching between Trump and Biden and it looks like Trump again, possibly? It looks like it's a dreadful, dreadful, awful position that the United States is in. It's a tragic scenario playing out because the polarization is even way worse than here. You you are either for Trump or you're evil, you're either against Trump or you're a lunatic. And whereas Trump got some real big bloody bumps on his record. He actually did some good things. He got a lot of deregulation under control. He got business up and running again. He got smacked by COVID and he mishandled COVID badly. But you just think, why is there not sort of some sort of centrist view of the world which says, if you're doing things that make the economy better and grow the business and keep people employed, then I'm not going to get into the personalities and the ad hominem attacks, which they're seriously bad up there. And um, it is, it's really quite worrying. I, I heard people on both sides, both channels, there were lots of television and radio channels, and you would never listen to one for more than five minutes without saying, I can't stand this anymore. So you go to the other one, it would be just as bad from the other side. And they would be laying labels and blames of, you know, you were responsible for child. I mean, Hillary Clinton got accused of running a child trafficking operation from the bottom of a pizza hut in Illinois or something. You think, mm. who did that? Where did it come from? No, There was no substance to it, but there were people all the way, you know, so you don't care if a previous person's been running a child trafficking ring and so on. It's It was just so bitter, and I don't know how they get out of it. And and social media has made it just 10 times worse. There are people up there with quite big influencer accounts that write just ghastly stuff about individuals, be it true or not. And instead of arguing the cases, I would much rather they'd argued about you've wrecked the economy by seeing, you know, unemployment go to 9% and interest rates go to 21% and our trade has fallen apart and we're manufacturing as bottom. I'm I'm really keen to have arguments or our standards in education are slipping and kids are not attending school and they're not passing enough grades or our hospitals are not caring for sick people. I don't want the debate to be, you know, about the personality stuff and the uh, the ad hominem attacks, but it's really extreme up there. It And as I said, or maybe we'd talk before you became on air, the problem I know is that, a number of top-notch people, articulate, capable, successful business people who mm. would absolutely make a great job of putting the economy on the right track and running the place, 
every time I raised it with them, they started laughing and said, I wouldn't have a bar of it. And I said, why not? And they said, well, first of all, I pay more in tax in a week than I'd earn. Secondly, uh, my private life, because back at university, I might have employed a Mexican housekeeper and didn't pay her the minimum wage. They dragged that out. You'd be ripped and torn to pieces for it uh, and have to try to account for everything. So you've got to be sort of cleaner than the, the desert sort of snow, which doesn't exist. And you've got it's, – it's just a shame because it's a wonderful country in so many other regards. I love America in some regards, and some of it's so ugly it's not funny. Well, you've also got the case where the media – and the deep state, in particular the FBI, are colluding to influence the political debate. We had the the, the false steel dossier, the Russia, Russia, yeah. Russia hoax, yeah. and then you had the Hunter Biden laptop that all of these intelligence experts all came out and said said it was it was a Russian um, disinformation. Pr- all of that was false, total no, no. lies that the media and social media and the intelligence community all worked in conjunction to keep it quiet or to broadcast it if it suited their agenda. The only problem with your debate is it's not only one-sided. I mean, Trump lost the election. There's no question of it. Uh, Big chunk of the turnout, the people there were just turning out that had never voted before because they wanted to get rid of them. You've got to have a, a, a democracy where you accept that you lie. I mean, that's the thing I love about New Zealand because I've been on the bad end and the good end. Yeah. When you're pressed up against the window of your beehive office and you see the the furniture movers taking your boxes out and the new lot walking in and they're talking to all your all your bureaucrats that had made out they were your friends for the last six or nine years <laughs> and now they were their friends and not yours. It's something Warren Cooper told me. Uh, he was a minister in the Muldoon mm. government and a bit of a dry old bloke, but he said to me, Morris, he said, uh, you'll be a minister very soon because this was when we first got in there. He said, you'll be a minister very soon. Best piece of advice I get, be very careful to know that you're a rooster today and a feather duster tomorrow around this place and that all the people that will circle around you to make out they're your friends. The day that you are out of here, you will not have the phone ring. No one will care about you. You know, and this. So he said, friends are people you have to your place for a barbecue or come around to listen to some deep purple music or whatever. Mm. But but these people are work colleagues. You've got to show some respect and you've got to work with them. But know that the day after an election, they'll be in that other side's office saying, looking forward to working with you, happy to have you on board. The exact same phrase that have been using had you won the election. Yeah, exactly. And on that note, Morris, you're. You're not still not a feather duster yet. You've got a, a <laughs> fair few years left in your head. So, Maybe just but, a dish cloth at this point. Yeah, I look. I, lo- I look forward to talking to you again about some council stuff when uh, when, when something to. comes to head. Thank love you very to. much for coming on the crunch. Right, Morris and I could have talked for hours. He certainly has been round the traps and is one of the best entertainers in New Zealand politics. As he said, he's delivered many reforms while he was in Parliament and he's now attacking the bureaucracy at Auckland Council, trying to hold them to account for the wasteful spending. And he's totally appalled, as am I, at the polarisation that has occurred in our politics here and overseas. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. RCR.